0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Hi, and welcome again to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, Charles Roberts. And this is the question we're going to examine. Why is a literal reading of Genesis threatening? And to whom? Okay, Charles, take it away.
0: That is an extremely important question, and it elicits sort of a gut reaction on a number of different levels, and surprisingly, even from uh, many Christians because we have this sort of built-in idea that has either seeped into our minds from the general culture or it's been inculcated into many who have attended government schools over the years that in spite of what we may say about our regard for holy scripture, we think of it as sort of a, a handbook of personal salvation and not an authoritative word about all aspects of life, including creation and what has come to be known broadly as science. And so, the fact that there is an absolute authority or a claimed absolute authority that speaks more powerfully and challenges the authority of any other, this creates a little bit of, uh, to compound the word dis-ease on the part of many people. Of course, humanists and atheists and uh, people like that reject any voice of authority outside of man's word, but disturbingly, as I said, there are some Christians who They don't like the creation story because it means there may be this area of their own thinking where they have admitted uh, some equal authority than that of God's word. So the
1: key word here appears to be authority. And we've discussed before, and I'm sure it's not going to be a new concept to listeners that sandwiched in the word authority is the word author. And so We are told in other parts of Scripture that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. So, first and foremost, it's probably a good idea to examine why the authority of Scripture, which had a foundational bearing on lots of America, colonial and then becoming a republic, and Western civilization in general. There was this embracing of God's word as the authority. Now, does that mean that everybody who acknowledged that didn't steal, didn't lie, didn't you know slander? No, right? Because we know people sin. But I think it's worthwhile to examine how the erosion started. And so most of us who live today were born in the 1900s at some point, And what had infiltrated thinking that called into question the authority of God's Word?
0: Yes, and this um, has very deep roots in our culture and in the 20th century, and we know we can trace it really all the way back to what we're talking about, and that is the creation story. Every pretended voice of authority that seeks to explain reality has some explanation as to how we find ourselves in whatever predicament we're in. And according to the only sovereign authority in the creation that God made, there was a challenge to the authority of His Word. And we know that came in the form of the serpent, Satan masquerading as the serpent, speaking to Adam and Eve and challenging the very Word of God and saying, well, you know, there is another authority either uh, greater authority or one equal. And a lot of people miss the fact they think that the, the, the action that really was the main thing in the original sin was the eating of the forbidden fruit. But it goes much deeper than that, in that there is a mental and spiritual challenge in the question, did God really say this?
1: And, and when you challenge God you usually have to challenge God on some footing, on some basis. And throughout, I would say, the last 100, 150 years, there's been a subtle, in every age, there's been a subtle has God said question that was levied in challenge to the scripture. So that first has God said happened in Genesis 3, 5 in the book of Genesis, and that question has been repeatedly asked, and to a greater or lesser degree, and we'd have to say lesser degree in our age, has been answered satisfactorily with a biblical worldview.
0: Yeah, and I like to uh, point out that the people who realized, at least some of the people who realized early on, the central importance of this debate and this discussion and this issue were the 20th century existential philosophers, especially a a guy like Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, uh, One of the most riveting things that Sartre talked about in his atheistic philosophy, which he he sought to put forward a consistently ironclad atheistic worldview. And in so doing, he pointed out, if we're going to do this, then we can't say, oh, I don't believe in God, but we maintain some semblance of a morality that is loosely more or less based on the Ten Commandments. That won't work because if we get rid of god we get rid of everything associated with god and he pointed out that you know if um, if i manufacture something and let's we'll just say it's it's a chair maybe nobody's ever seen a chair before and i'm the one who comes up with the idea of engineering and manufacturing a chair well the purpose of that chair is the meaning and the purpose that i've given to it as its creator i know what went into my mind to bring it forth on the drawing board in the manufacturing process, and it is what it is because of the meaning that I've given it and the purpose that I've given it, and in his philosophy, uh, man is the one thing that has no purpose because there is no God to give man any meaning whatsoever, and so you can see that he understood something very profound that a lot of our, you know, phony, well-intended people who Say, oh, yeah, I think we can believe in evolutionary science and we can also maintain the, the, the creation story on some level because, you know, you can't do that. You can't do that because God himself says, no, that won't work. That is not allowable in, in the world that I've created. You will listen to this voice or you'll listen to some other that will eventuate in your own destruction.
1: When you think about it, um, Sartre wasn't first. He was building on the erroneous philosophies of predecessors. And you can go back to Rene Descartes and his famous, I think, therefore I am. Well, isn't that how Adam and Eve proceeded with the challenge to God's word? It makes sense to us. I think I should be able to eat whatever I want. Therefore, I'm the authority. So even Descartes was borrowing from the uh, apostasy of Adam and Eve, but solidifying that apostasy into a valuable and profitable way to live.
0: Yeah, and I think people uh, need to realize, if they don't already, the profound implications of the creation story and the account of God creating all things of nothing in the space of six days and all very good in all areas of life, and particularly how it relates to human beings. Because an example is, like I gave with Jean-Paul Sartre, Um, if human beings have no meaning outside of what they invest in their own lives and their own meaning, because if there's no God, there is no meaning except what we decide, then that is open to any number of interpretations. But that's not the reality, because God did create us in his own image, and I would like to encourage our listeners, if they've never done so, to partake of one of Dr. Rastuni's perhaps a little lesser-known books, But I think one of his most important is called The Revolt Against Maturity. And in this book, he points out in several introductory chapters how the creation of man has profound impact and profound implications for the psychology of man and who we are on the inside and on the outside. Because as Paul would later go on to explain, each person in their being knows that there's a God and they're accountable to that God. But the nature of our fallen um, our fallen nature is such that we suppress that truth. this This is the, the the fundamental mental illness, if you will, that all of us are born with, and but for the grace of God, need to be delivered from, is we have this inner turmoil because we are resisting the one who created us authoritatively and sovereignly. And so all of life for people in that situation is an effort to either, come to terms with that and accept the grace of god as it is offered to them or it is to continually rebel against it and that will proliferate in a variety of ways and in some way we can look at all the problems throughout history personally culturally as a man in revolt against the uh, pattern the the form that god created for him and mercy points out in this book that man was created a mature being And part of the problem with humanistic psychology is it it treats man, you know, as some sort of immature person who needs to get involved in all kinds of therapeutic things and whatnot. Um, Again, I encourage readers to spend some time in the first couple of chapters in that book.
1: The book is very helpful. As a matter of fact, I conducted a woman's study with another Reconstructionist lady for well over a year going through the aspects of that. But to go back to something you said, terminology means something. And in the past, when somebody talked about the creation story, they meant story synonymously with the creation account, just like I could talk about the story of my birth. It's not a pretend account. It's an actual account, but our vernacular has gotten to the point where tell me the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, tell me the story of Little Red Riding Hood, and then the creation story ends up being absorbed into that meaning of the word story so that it becomes very easy for those who want to take the foundation out of people's thinking in a godly sense and just say, look, it's a story, right? And not take the account as the beginning, Genesis means beginning, of every major doctrine in the Bible. So if you look at the book of Genesis, you're looking at the basis on which we will and should come to conclusions that the rest of Scripture will flesh out and explain.
0: I think the impetus for some of this is, and you know, we'll give folks the benefit of the doubt, maybe... A sincere attempt, or an, um, what they would think is an honestly motivated attempt, to account for knowledge generally, and so they will say something like, "Yes, the the creation account, the creation narrative. Well, that's true in its context. However, you know, we know that science, and again, I'm speaking uh, as people who think this way. Science has given us a great deal of knowledge concerning." Biology and anthropology, and all of these various disciplines. And we know that it's just not possible that the world could be created in six literal 24 hour days and it's much older than 6,000 years or whatever. So, certainly, it's possible that we could have the creation account, the creation narrative. But then we can also say, well, maybe the Lord used evolution as that means that's given to us. And of course, Moses was an uneducated man he didn't know anything about this so you know we have to look back into this and uh, invest this knowledge into the text of scripture which is is a failed attempt i mean it's it's wholly unjustified i'll say more about that in a few minutes but this is really an effort to straddle the fence and take both sides of an argument to which there are no sidelines and in one of his lectures on early genesis Uh, Dr. Rustuni told the story about um, a man who was a farmer in the United States during the era of the war between the states and he was in one of the border states like Missouri or West Virginia, whatever, and he didn't really have a dog in the fight so he thought so in order to show his neutrality uh, and because sometimes these troops would get in firefights between each other in and around his property, he would wear a blue coat symbolizing his sympathy to the union and a great gray pair of pants to symbolize his sympathy for the Confederacy. Now, one day he got in a crossfire and the Confederates shot him in the coat and the Union troops shot him in the pants. <laughs> and the point that Dr. Rushdini made in that story is that this is generally what happens when you try to take both sides. Uh, you're going to lose either way.
1: So the first initial question I posed was, who does it threaten? So who does... Um, Who is threatened when we say God created all things in six days, he deemed them very good, he rested the seventh day, and all the pronouncements that are made in terms of what is, if you follow them, who's threatened by a literal understanding of God's word in Genesis?
0: I think the answer to that question is several fold. It certainly threatens all of those who reject out of hand the absolute authority of Holy Scripture. And so uh, there is that group of people, which unfortunately characterizes growing numbers in um, American culture and has for a long time. Uh, and, And we can see this whether people implicitly or explicitly say that. I mean, the fact that, say, you would have an entire education system controlled by a government that does not officially recognize this very thing we're talking about. Uh, that is a challenge, and that is people that is uh, an area who would feel very threatened by this. But on the other hand, there are those that we might consider fellow Christians who also may feel threatened uh, by the creation account because, as I said, they want to sit on both sides of the fence, and they're not ready, perhaps, to admit the way in which their own thinking has been corrupted, uh, or in which maybe they've never come to terms with the fact that there is this area of life that they have never acknowledged that God is completely sovereign over.
1: Indeed. You know, um, a couple of months ago, I succumbed to the dreaded COVID, and I'm completely recovered. I have all that robust immunity now. So I consider myself fully immunized. But I had an opportunity to do what I always said I would do. I'm going to read if I'm ever in a position where, you know, I just have the time. And then I, I did have the time as I was recovering. And I went through my bookshelf and I found a book that I had purchased. And quite frankly, Charles, I don't even know when I purchased it, but it was there. And I pulled it out. And it was written by a Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones called Old Testament Chronology. Now, the thesis of this book is in line with Annals of the World by James Usher, and it talks about the age of the earth, the chronology as given in scripture. And there was one section that was very much an eye-opener for me in terms of understanding why we have a hard time promoting the view that what God says in his word in the first book of the Bible is reliable. And he pointed out that there is a threefold reason. He said, first and foremost, when you had the higher criticism of theologians who were going to look at the Bible and assess it, grade it, decide what was true and not, you clearly had man's word, imposing just what we've already talked about man's reasoning on an account so as you said well we won't say it's wrong but we're not going to say it's right and we're going to evaluate it the second part of that was how darwin's theory of evolution has permeated much of science and so people feel as though they can't really uh, you know promote biblical theology or chronology, because they'll look foolish in light of things that everybody knows to be true. And then finally, he says that as a result of the first two, people have abandoned biblical chronology. So the Bible, if you look at it from the accounts in scripture, says that the earth is no more than about 6,000 years old. Well, that's a very far cry from what you'll get in geology courses and everything else. So this erosion with this three prongs basically makes Christians, professing Christians, feel like they have to make the decision like your farmer in this, during the Civil War. And over and over again, we know that there can't be because it's impossible to be neutral. So you either have to say this is true or this is not true. It can't be partially true because how do you know which parts are
0: true? Yes, and the book that you referred to, uh, that's another title that we might consider recommending to our listeners. And lest anyone jump to the conclusion that it's some stuffy old book, um, it's really a coffee table type book that is very nicely bound and illustrated and um, it raises these points early on about the, the God-centered view versus the humanistic-centered view. And and on that note, let, let me say something, if I may, about the author of the creation account, and that is Moses. And, you know, some people have this idea, again, that he's some sort of simple-minded, an educated man sitting out <clears throat> in a Middle Eastern desert, uh, putting together this mostly mythological story. Well, let's remember that this man was raised in Egypt, uh, a culture and a society with a vast amount of knowledge and learning. And he also spent time in Midian. He also crossed many, many boundaries on the way to Canaan. So that meant that he encountered and was well aware of many creation accounts. All the pagans had their own accounts of these things. And so, uh, and all of them had at least one thing in common, and that is the gods, or a god, or wh- whatever it was that they might attribute it to, created everything out of something that was already there. So the material world existed first, and then their gods came along and decided to create something. And I think it's Rushduni who points out that there's at least one of these creation accounts from a pagan tradition that says the gods actually created um, the world out of the bodies of dead gods. Uh, so that there's that kind of thing but the story of Darwin is a particularly interesting one and in that people have this idea is that you have this wizened old british guy with the long gray beard and he's on this uh, ship going around to far off islands and he's got the equivalent of a pencil behind his ear and a clipboard in his hand and maybe a microscope and he's examining insects and all kinds of species of life and he just out of nowhere, elaborates this marvelous story of and theory of evolution. Uh, At best, that is only partially accurate, because Darwin was actually building on the shoulders of, and, and you had just pointed this out, I think, of people who had gone before him, and most notably was the German philosopher Hegel. I don't know if any of our listeners would be familiar with Hegel. He's certainly easy enough to look up, and whether or not anyone wants to take the time, you should be fully aware that Hegel has influenced your life in ways that you can't even begin to see. Have you ever heard of communism, Marxism? Uh, Those things would be unthinkable without Hegel's philosophy. And he is the one who was the first to claim and argue from the standpoint that man is ultimate, that the state is God walking on the earth. So he had elaborated uh, a philosophy based on a theory of evolutionary development, not necessarily relating to species, but it was something on which Darwin would build, and really long before Hegel, uh, some of the ancient Greek philosophers had done the same thing.
1: And I've um, heard Mark Rush Dooney lecture on this, pointing out that the first edition of The Origin of the Species, and it has a longer name, sold out quickly, because people wanted a justification for their worldview. And so, this isn't the first, Darwin was not the first proponent of this, He took it and elaborated. And if you ever actually examine the book, when you want to talk about racism, Darwin was the quintessential racist because he actually thought that Australian Aborigines and Black people from Africa were part of the progression of evolution, that they weren't even actually people. Right. So it's so interesting how this narrative has changed that makes people of faith the racists and the evolutionists not. It's a classic example of accuse others of what it is you believe. And let's face it, how many people do you know have read The Origin of the Species?
0: Um, I don't know any, including myself. I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've I've read, of course, about it, but uh, I've never started with page one and gone to whatever page it is. But that's that's another thing is even people who have would honestly say, no, I've never read it. They couldn't really tell you that much about it or other than the fact that it's associated with Darwin. But it, it's an excellent point you bring up is that uh, much of the miseries of especially the 20th century have come from people who have embraced this worldview. And I want to do something right now. I would like to challenge our listeners. Uh, I'm going to play just like, you know, there's the Antichrist. Well, I'm going to be the anti sart okay? Because in, in this project of starting from the worldview that there is no God, and not only is there no God, there can't be a God, and so we have to build a world and a reality based on that. Why don't we as Christians start in the opposite direction and say, there is a God, he has spoken authoritatively in scripture, and everything that we are to believe and do in life every area of life that you can possibly name should come from his divinely revealed word. And a significant part of what we would generally call science is given to us in the book of Genesis. And that means starting with everything that we read and is limited to uh, what can be either uh, clearly stated from scripture or uh, uh, deducted from scripture. I mean, we, we have given to us a clear understanding about the, the days of creation, what each day represented, and um, the, 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 the nature of the existence of the earth. Uh, you know, th- there are all kinds of interesting things that crop up and are uh, going it this way. And yet people automatically reject that out of hand as somehow not being a worthy project. But they've given themselves over to a worldview that starts with the proposition there is no God and there can't be a God.
1: And even those who wouldn't go so far as to say that, they try to accommodate the biblical account, but not try to make science make sense via the scripture. They try to make the scripture make sense via science. And so as a result of that, the loser is the person who basically gives up the ground, which First of all, they don't own that ground. God owns that ground. So when you give up something that doesn't belong to you, that's called theft. But to get back to the idea of who it threatens, it's very obvious who it threatens to me, because if you can no longer have the Bible read, read, not even say it's true, but just read in the state schools, obviously that threat of a counter account Is not acceptable. And so when you try to make the case with Christians that they should not have their children in state schools, this is the reason because without the foundation of God's word, their life approach, their worldview can be built on something else, and that something else is never
0: challenged. You know, it's uh, been said that you can learn a lot about a person by who their friends are. But also by who their enemies are. And it's easy enough to see, therefore, who are threatened by the account of creation given in Genesis by those who oppose it, or from those who oppose it. In another of his important books, The Mythology of Science, Dr. Rustuni referenced the uh, Kyle and Delitz Old Testament Commentary, which uh, the edition he referenced was published in 1949, And he he says uh, the basic issue with reference to Genesis 1 was well stated in that commentary. And he quotes it, creation is an act of the personal God, not a process of nature. Now, I don't know how many modern commentaries on Genesis would even dare to say something like that. But um, that commentary certainly did. And that was the general view among most Orthodox small-o theologians, uh, prior to the moving forward of the of the then 20th century. But yes, um, again, who is it? Look carefully in your commentaries, in your study bibles, in your conversations on the popular media in academia, who who are the ones who oppose the absolute authority of God's word in this area of creation and the 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 facts that are given to us in holy scripture. It's not that you got to make room for one and the other and somehow just sort of work it all out in a nice little, all get, can't we all get along here? Again, Dr. Rastuni somewhere said, you know, there are no sidelines in this battle. There's, there's no middle ground and the casualties will be grim, but we are assured of absolute victory in our God. And the fact that Christians have lost so much ground is based on the fact that there have been people who, have called themselves Christians, but who have not believed the Lord and his divine word in too many areas of life that they've ceded to those who hate it.
1: And a question often comes up, are you saying that these people aren't Christian? My answer is they're apostate Christians, they're disobedient Christians, they're unfaithful Christians. It's not my call to say who has the Holy Spirit or not, other than what Jesus said, judge them by their fruits. Now, One of the major threats to this humanistic worldview, this secular worldview, which is what results when you remove the Genesis account as being true, is that um, there are people who begin to understand, wait a second, what we've been taught in, in our school system isn't true. So they start examining it. If you go to a search engine and put in Christian creation ministries, Creationministries.com, I think that's where I, you know, what came up. Anyway, there are like a hundred organizations that actually speak to various aspects of Genesis being true. And I, this past weekend, I, listened to the head of Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham. He's the one who started the Creation Museum in Kentucky and the Ark Encounter. And his thesis is that if you look at Genesis 1 through chapter 11, every major doctrine of scripture is enumerated there. And all our major social problems today can be easily resolved in understanding if you look at those chapters. So how many genders are there? God said there were two. What is marriage? It's between a man and a woman. So when we have all this confusion, are there 50 genders? Are there 20 genders? Are there 70 genders? We shouldn't play that game. We should go back and state, thus saith the Lord. There's two, God-ordained marriage, the biblical account is accurate, that everybody came from two individuals, so we're all part of the same human race, and this undermines critical race theory. It undermines all that, but you'd have to encourage people to read the Bible as true.
0: You know, if um, if a person is intentionally being deceptive and dishonest, uh, there are going to be ramifications and results from that. And such a person would have a vested interest in making sure that those who would be adversely impacted by it aren't completely aware of what's going on, or at least you know covering up some aspect of what is at the basis for all these problems, which is the fundamental dishonesty or deception. And we see something going on like that in this opposition to God's law and God's word in the book of Genesis, because as you just well stated, Everything is there in those first 11 chapters, or as you said, Ken Ham stated, because you can see from the very beginning with this uh, satanic challenge to the authority of God's word and our um, mother and father of the time, Adam and Eve, falling for it, everything that unfolds from that chapter all the way through the rest of Genesis is a result of that turning away from the authority of God, the, the, the murder that is created, and then uh, when we get to the organization of the Tower of Babel, you know, this is the first recorded instance of an effort to create a world government and for, for man to make a name for himself, and I think if there's anything um, that's very clear is that what is being attempted today through this whole COVID business and everything else that's been going on around the world in the past year and a half is a cover-up of how the foundation of these ideas is crumbling and falling apart. And I don't know if it was in something that Mark said or his father, but that, you know, the earliest Christians probably could not have an an easy time of assuming or realizing the absolute authority of Christ and his kingdom and the opposition that they were facing from a government whose project was to completely do away with them or at least make them subservient to the Roman government. Uh, And yet, that was their hope. That was the 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 entire project. And now we see the same thing going on today where Christians are being marginalized, especially those who take God's absolute authority seriously. So if we're starting at a different point than what we have in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we're going to come out with a very different outcome than if we begin with that and hold to it as faithfully as we can. And the the proof is all around us of as to where that leads. And although we've never had a time, at least in our lifetimes, when that's all been perfect, I think that for all of our failings, our Christian ancestors understood something about the centrality of the authority of God's word and what God says is true and the account of, of human history and, and who and what human beings are.
1: And when I was going through, and I haven't finished it because as you said, when you called it a coffee table book, this Old Testament chronology You can go look at the table of contents and say, okay, I want to talk. I want to look at this. I want to look at that. Well, what really encouraged me, Charles, was just having an understanding of the span of time. So both Usher and Jones agree that 4004 BC, in other words, if you look at when, if you make the date of everything when it started zero, that Jesus is born in 4004, and so we know we are in 2021 right now. But the time of the flood was 2038 BC, which means the time from the flood to Jesus's birth is longer than the time from Jesus's birth to us now. And it gave me this sense of expanding my understanding to know God's had a plan from the beginning. The chapters of history that I'm part of, nothing new is under the sun. There have been challenges to God's authority from Genesis 3, 5. And it it gives me, anyway, this sense of trusting the Bible and then making all these genealogies make sense. Everybody likes to skip over the genealogies. But that's where men like Usher and Jones came up with the ages and the dates because they trusted what the Bible had to say. And that's where we have to start. We have to start with thus saith the Lord and not just say thus saith the Lord sometimes. Right. We have to trust that almighty God who created us and sent a came in the flesh to save us has left us with a reliable record.
0: He has left us and given us a sure word, uh, an infallible and an errant word, and that idea of an infallible and errant word is inescapable. You are going to assign that or acquiesce to it in some area, and whether people admit it or not, uh, they implicitly give that authority to the teachings of so-called modern science if they aren't giving it to and acquiescing to the authority of God's word. And you know, you mentioned at the very beginning um, the issue of Christian marriage and the sex roles of men and women. And this, of course, is another area where people who are uh, on the wrong side of those issues they hate this word, and therefore they are among those who oppose it. It's interesting how, in so many areas of humanistic culture, uh, the the creation account must be opposed on some level very intensely. And this is certainly one of them. And we can see how the humanists have largely succeeded in changing the language, which is a, a sure way that they have succeeded and gone forward with these things is affecting the meaning of words and not even just sim- something obvious like the term gay, uh, where people of a certain generation will remember when that simply meant somebody who was happy and happy-go-lucky. No one would ever think that nowadays Who is say, under the age of 40 This whole idea of gender, in other words. The Bible doesn't speak of gender. It speaks of sexes. There are only two. Of course, if you elaborate a theory of gender, then you can come up with all kinds of variations on that. My understanding is a term that comes from linguistics or the study of words, where you have male, female, uh, masculine, feminine, and neuter uh, genders of words and nouns and verbs. Uh, It was never applied to human beings until fairly recently, and for the purposes that we're talking about. If you don't like what God has said in this area, then you're going to come up with all kinds of what, to any rational mind, uh, from a biblical standpoint, is absolute nonsense and absurdity.
1: So when you point out that gender is a term that is really used in grammar, and When we look at things according to what God says, we don't have confusion. So, for example, if I say the husband picked up his briefcase, husband was recognized as a male or a masculine noun. Therefore, that masculine noun would require a masculine pronoun if you weren't going to say the husband picked up the husband's suitcase. And so, it distorts language to the point that things become ununderstandable. So early on when people didn't accept the fact that if you said man was made in God's image, he was made that it was referring to male and female, that he embraced both, then when that became an issue, then we messed up the grammar and said the boys the boy picked up there and we changed it to a plural nebulous pronoun to accommodate a worldview that's contrary to Scripture. So this has been um, a progressive thing, and because, by and large, pulpits didn't recognize the threat, as a matter of fact, they probably embraced it in some sort because if the state was going to take over education, then the parents and the church didn't have to. So this idea that it's just these bad philosophers, these bad philosophers infiltrated the church when the gatekeepers, the watchmen on the wall, didn't do their job.
0: And this whole issue of pronouns, I have uh, um, a very good friend who is a Christian wife and mother and homeschooler who, up until fairly recently, had um, a full part-time job at... um, a popular coffee chain. I won't say any more than that. And she left that job because she couldn't take any more of this challenge to the biblical worldview that's pretty much taken over that and many other companies where it was being insisted upon her that she, if someone who worked with her in, uh, insisted on it, that she must address them by whatever pronouns they decide that they are for that day or that month or, or whatever it may be. And you can see how, and again, to circle back to what I was saying a moment ago, that when the humanists begin to succeed, when it appears that they are winning, so to speak, that spells their own doom. It always has, and it always will. And they don't understand that. And this is a perfect example, This what I just referred to, where you have, in this particular case, this particular company, they are promoting people and hiring people. And it could be any number of types of businesses, because they're, they're, it's, it's all through our culture right now. They're, they're promoting and um, pushing forward people, not because of their integrity, not because of their ability to do something well, but because they have three different colors in their hair, because they like to use 20 different pronouns, because they meet all these little politically correct uh, standards. And sooner or later, that begins to break down because, you know, if you have a a business that's, say, dependent upon producing a good quality product, but you don't have anybody working for you who can do that, there goes your business. Nobody's going to buy it and you will end up losing everything you have. So it, it goes back again to the very foundation God has given us in creation and the way he has constructed us. The means by which we can be successful, by mean, the means by which we can prosper. But it's according to his standard and according to his word that we can realize those things. And to turn away from it, it leads ultimately to destruction and decay and doom.
1: So for those who might be doom and gloomers on our side of the aisle, let me call people's attention to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 makes it very clear That the situation is under control. It is so much under control that the Lord laughs. He laughs at the shenanigans of fallen man who try to be their own God, determining for themselves right and wrong. And a clear picture for me of that humanism is crumbling is that now they have to resort to coercion. See, for the last 150 years, they were able to censor out in, you know, systematically a biblical world and life view, so people were hearing one thing, and they were sort of okay with people going to church and having this small amount of time, and it served their purposes because the church, by and large, wasn't challenging the state school system. But then increasingly, you began to have truancy laws if these people weren't in school, And now we have, you have to get this injection or that injection, or you have to agree to all sorts of things in order to go to our school. So by the time people are going to coercion as a way in which to, quote unquote, gain followers, you know, they know that their system is crumbling. And for Christians, we need to be repeating the message that your children need to be raised as Christians, and taught as Christians, and that if, in fact, a business won't do business with you, that we set up alternate businesses, alternate healthcare systems. After all, that's what the early church did. That's how Western civilization came about. True, their Genesis 3-5 moment wasn't how many genders there were. It was, was Caesar Lord or not? So at different times in history, there are going to be different issues. And one of the things that um, I'm always grateful for is R.J. Rushduni understood the issue of statism being the threat to the people of God. And he identified it. And praise God, more people are embracing it. And that's why we see the enemies of God getting scared and I think moving towards coercion.
0: And I think it's in his most recent letter to uh, supporters that Mark Rustuni pointed out that the, um, the decay and the falling apart of humanistic society that we are witnessing today, which of course is coming on the back of their seeming success, is that there are within that humanistic society institutions that need to fail. They are of no use whatsoever to God's kingdom and insofar as people who claim to be Christians are invested in them in whatever shape or form, it's going to be threatening. But this is a means by which I think almighty God is shaking the tree, so to speak, uh, to wake up his people, to recognize, as you said, uh, we should be in the business of building a Christian culture and a Christian kingdom worldwide. And if that means losing the uh, man-centered, God-hating institutions that have, uh, infested our culture for so long, then so be it. It may not be a pleasant thing, but it's something that God calls us to, and we should take seriously the fact that the church will assault the gates of hell and prevail against them, and that takes time and effort, and uh, it takes commitment, and that's what the Lord calls us to.
1: And I can tell you from personal experience, if you work on the local level, one-on-one with people, in opportunities that come your way— you're going to find the joy that says yes indeed thy kingdom come thy will be done because as we do god's will personally familiarly churchwise and societally we are going to reap benefits maybe not in our lifetime but for goodness sakes we've re- we reaped the benefits of many generations that came before us so we need to do our part in terms of passing on such a godly legacy as the Bible lays out.
0: Absolutely. And in wrapping up my side of this, I would just recommend to our listeners to avail themselves of the the literature, the books that we've referenced in this, and to go back and read the first 11 chapters of Genesis with new eyes, if necessary, read from two or three different good translations, and really uh, come to grips with uh, what God has spoken in his word and, Uh, the worldview that is to be built from that word.
1: Listeners, thanks for joining us. You can always reach us, and I appreciate those who have contacted us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.